Welcome to Econ Talk, Conversations for the Curious, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Shalem College in Jerusalem and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Go to econtalk.org where you can subscribe, comment on this episode, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives with every episode we've done going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is July 27th, 2021, and my guest is journalist and author Nicholas Wabshot. His latest book is Samuelson Friedman, The Battle Over the Free Market. He was last here in October of 2011 discussing his book, Keynes Hayek. I want to thank Plantronics for providing today's guest with the Blackwire 5220 headset. Nicholas, welcome back to Econ Talk. I'm glad to be here, Russ. Always good to talk to you. Let's start with what these two men, Paul Samuelson and Milton Friedman, had in common. Yes, they, it's extraordinary. They, although they were the greatest rivals on earth, it was as if they were twins separated at birth. They were within a couple of years of each other. They were, both had very similar backgrounds. They were both Jewish, but neither of them practiced Judaism in a serious way they, as they grew up. But that civilized uh, bubble was surrounded them always. They, were, they understood each other intimately. They went to the same university. Um, Samuelson was a precocious child and although he was two years younger than Milton he was in the same year as Milton so uh, they'd literally shared the same class and uh, they headed off into the great world together with both you'd imagine identical views of the world but in fact they had very sharply different views of the world one turned left one turned right how did they get along Um, and of course talk about how they were in the public eye. They each were alternating uh, week, weekly columns at Newsweek for, for a long time. Uh, how did they get along in person? How did they get along in print? And I'm curious how, how much uh, – did you read all of their columns? 18 years worth of columns? Yes, I did. Yeah, okay, yeah. go ahead. Well, 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 yeah, I mean a lot of, a lot of it, of course – totally irrelevant by today because you can't really work out what was going on at any time. A weekly column is not enough time, really. They're not writing the first draft of history. They're just shoveling the stuff out the door. Uh, But they they got on with each other pretty well, considering that they had very different views of the world. They were rather envious of each other in many respects. Certainly, Milton always thought that uh, Paul Samuelson had had it rather easy. Uh, and that's really because he won scholarship after scholarship after scholarship. And Milton took a rather longer route to get to much the same place. I think that Milton was also envious of Samuelson's easy air with uh, established society. Milton was an outsider always. He liked to be an outsider. Yes, that suited him. And, yes, uh, that was the grit in the oyster for Milton. And uh, he enjoyed that. Rose Friedman, Milton's uh, energetic wife, constantly carping at Samuelson for living too high on the hog, and that poor Milton had to put up with, you know, only a second home in Vermont and so on. But uh, they, they both did amazingly well. They both won Nobel Prizes. Uh, yes, they got on very well in person. Uh, on the page, they were rather cooler towards each other, as one sure. might expect, because they were representing their different tribes, if you like. Uh, there was a, 
there's no doubt there was an intense personal rivalry, however friendly they were. And even after years after Milton's death, Paul Samuelson was still kicking his corpse. He could not yep. resist giving another little jab. Yeah, uh, we'll, co- we'll come back to that. I, I'm yeah. just going to remark on that. Yeah, yeah. it's true. Um, At the same time, when, about- when, when Milton died, there's a sweet letter written by Samuelson to Rose saying, I lost a wife and you'll find that Milton will always be with you. He'll be there. And uh, so don't worry about that. He'll, he's still with us and uh, he's still looking over my shoulder too. And that, So there's a great warmth actually beyond the obvious uh, rather uh, steely rivalry. I mean, there's no doubt this was fist fighting. This was every bit as much as Keynes Hayek fought each other and then they became close friends, of course. Uh, these guys were close friends but they always maintained well, you know, civil relationships with each other. There was never any outright slanging. On the other hand, their personal letters were very often vituperative, very often sarcastic, very often uh, unforgiving, I think. But you have a lot of examples from both men uh, of correspondence where they, were, they treat each other with respect. And I think regardless of, of the differences in their ideologies and, and perspectives on economics, uh, there, there was certainly, at a minimum, a grudging respect because of the success of both, of both in in their in the career they in the field they both share. Absolutely, um, yeah. Let's H- let's start hugely with- prominent. I mean, you know, yeah. we are talking about sort of numbers numbers one and two. You could argue who was more influential, who was more important. But yeah. in their lifetime, they would both admit that they, each other was the most important rival outside of their world. Yeah. Or at least living rival. I'm sure living they also rival, yes. considered their place in in, in history. Yeah. Um, yeah. And interestingly, actually, they were they, they both professed to be Keynesians in the end. Sort of. Well, what Hayek said was that actually they they were both Keynesians, and uh, they were closer to each other than he was to either of them. And that's sort of true. I, I I think it's more that's more methodological. I think Milton often staked out. Uh, Keynesian ground because he wanted to fight on his opponent's home turf, uh, and he felt he could, and he felt he could be more effective if he couched his work, his intellectual work, not his political, philosophical work, but his his intellectual work. I think he tried very much to beat Keynes at his own game. Hayek did also, of course, uh, and 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 excuse me, uh, yeah, Hayek did also, of course, and he, I think, failed. Whereas I think Milton had a much better success rate. So as much as I like Hayek, I think. There might be a personal thing in that remark, but um, let's talk about their intellectual legacies. I'll start with Samuelson. How would you summarize Samuelson's uh, contributions? I think he set out to, um, in a way, complete what Keynes had left behind. Keynes died prematurely and uh, left a lot of questions unanswered. And for uh, Paul Samuelson, it was a matter of, completing the work, filling, filling all the gaps in. And laboriously, he would write paper after paper after paper, learned journal papers. He filled in every single aspect, worked it all out mathematically in order to show exactly why these bits and pieces of the economy worked. And it was endless. For him, it was uh, like coloring in a coloring book. You know, He had to finish the whole portrait so that it was left behind. Uh, and he found himself, of course, defending... He thought himself as the high priest, I think, of Keynesianism, or he disguised it by saying that actually he'd found a synthesis which combined the best of Hayek and the best of Keynes, or the best of 
conservatives and liberal economics together. But I don't think in, in his own mind he was the inheritor of Keynes's legacy and his uh, chief proponent. And no doubt from his writing of the key textbook, which all of us undergraduates read, simply called Economics by Paul Samuelson, one of the best-selling textbooks of all time, uh, written and published, still being published and still being revised at roughly, in today's money, 150 bucks a throw. He became a very rich man very, very early in um, promulgating Keynes's legacy. And the opposite was true of, of Milton. I think Milton, in his mind, well, he deliberately set out to expose what he thought were the flaws in Keynes's thinking. And to this end, he would uh, do anything, including he went very interesting sojourns he spent in Cambridge, England, hanging out with the old Keynesians, the old uh, kitchen cabinet that Keynes had brought together, and arguing with them one by one. And uh, they, they became friends and corresponding friends too, all in the Hoover archive, which is where all Milton's work is to be found. Yep. You'll find all sorts of Keynesians, most unlikely people, writing in a very friendly way to Milton. Because he was, there's no doubt, he was, he was, it could be amazingly irritating, but he was an amazing, charming man. Yes, he uh, was. He was seductive. And I don't yep. think that Paul Samuelson quite had that. He, would, he, he had an easy sort of patrician air, Samuelson, but he didn't have what Milton had, which was an urgency, a sense that, you know, something important has to be decided while we're talking, you know. The, this, the present moment we're talking, arguing, is the most important of them all. Samuelson took a much longer, loftier view. Uh, which the the only thing I would add, the only thing I would add to your summary of of Samuelson is, it, it's true he he was a Keynesian certainly in the area of macroeconomics, but his contributions to microeconomic theory, which was not Keynesian's bailiwick, Keynes's bailiwick at all, were were really pathbreaking uh, in the field. It's not my cup of tea, as listeners are you know will not be surprised to hear. But his 1948 book, Foundations of Economic Analysis, is really a, 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 uh, the crossroads of the profession where it turned toward the application of mathematics to human behavior in a way that hadn't been done in that way before. He was a very young man. It's an incredibly uh, impressive achievement. Um, and so in that sense, I think he had a, a much bigger impact on academic economics than Milton did. Uh, Milton's work that was influential academically was his his attack on the Keynesian foundations, really, in, in macroeconomics. Uh, and, and we'll talk about that. And Milton, uh, I, I wanna... Sorry, sorry. Go ahead. The other thing is that I think that Milton had a much grander ambition, really. Paul Samuelson was in economics. He was economics. And that's, his world was economics. Milton started off in economics, but he worked out that in order to tell the tale that he wanted to tell, he needed to broaden out his appeal. He needed to become popular, and he also needed to make it a political movement more than an economic movement. And I think that when it comes to, for instance, his libertarian ideas, which have become much more mainstream than they ever were when he was alive, uh, he has transformed, well, I think, say, the Republican Party is now every bit as much a libertarian party as it is a conservative party. And that's so that's that part of to do that it. claim, that claim yeah. which is, runs through your book, I disagree with oh, and was shocked to read it. Read oh. it. We'll, we'll, we'll talk about it. Hmm. Um, but I do think you're right that he distinctively had a vision 
in a way, was one of the earliest public intellectuals from the academy, right? There were many, there were a lot of public intellectuals. Galbraith was, was also in this era. You, you reference him a few times, but he wasn't in the, he, he had an appointment at Harvard, but he wasn't the academic influence that a Samuelson or a Friedman were. And Friedman's goal clearly was to take his academic credentials and leverage those to have an, uh, an impact on the public. Yes. And on policy, and on yes. policy. Um, before we get to these issues of of, um, of politics, one of the parts I, I loved about your book is that the, Samuelson was forced to acknowledge the state of economics with some honesty regularly because he had a best-selling textbook. And one of the things I really love about your book is that you periodically take a look at how Milton is percolating into the into the textbook. Yeah, so yeah. Uh, that's a fascinating window. It's it's a lovely bit of it's like a, a case study essentially, looking at those uh, successive editions of Samuelson's book Economics, which I did also learn from uh, as an undergraduate. I actually learned. I also studied it in high school. Even I, I remember very vividly uh, reading a chapter of it at the suggestion of one of my teachers. And um, but because of that. Samuelson had to publicly state at least some version of what he thought where the profession was and our understanding of the economy. So talk about how you did that and what that was. Obviously, it, that's not the essence of the book. It's just a no, no, little side thing, and it's lovely. From a, from a writer's point of view, there were two things which were, uh, for me, amazingly valuable. First of all, these 18 years where they would play intellectual tennis, whacking the ball back and across the net and back and back and back, uh, which was fascinating to watch. Uh, they didn't talk to each other. They spoke through the readers, if you like. They addressed the readers, uh, which is for a popular author like me, or a semi-popular author, uh, uh, it, it's very important to see how they express themselves to a general public, which was good. And then it, you're, you're quite right. that uh, The fact that Samuelson was obliged to, and he was honest enough to have yeah. to, write what he believed to be the true state of affairs. It might, there might have been little lag. He was not, wasn't the leading indicator in terms of reporting of Friedman's work. Uh, but at the same time, when we came to the first edition of Economics, I don't think uh, Friedman's mentioned at all, or he's mentioned in passing in a footnote, as is, as is Hayek, just as if they didn't exist. But as time went on, he had to acknowledge that they had become a force and that they had to be tackled, they had to be reasoned with, they had to be addressed, and he gave them actually enormous credit. Both of them were intellectually honest, which I think is interesting, and it's, yeah. it's very important for all academics to be intellectually honest. Neither of them, although they were both very political in their ways, uh, they weren't pushed around by politicians, and they weren't pushed around by current politics. They had a much larger aim, which was based upon finding the truth, which for an yeah. academic is really the key thing. So many well, academics I think, drift away. Yeah, so many <laughs> academics get into other businesses. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, and and I've I've mentioned you know many times on this program that in in this the the column started what year? Do you remember the two of them? It was uh, yeah. Whenever that say when, when did the sale take place? Of Jack I'm Kennedy was just see, the late, right, early sixties, so early sixties, sixty two, sixty three. Yeah, so those Jack years. Kennedy was just alive, just. The crazy thing about it is that in those years, there were three famous economists, really, three and a half, right? You had Friedman and, and Samuelson because they were, you know, 
in a national news magazine, Newsweek, every every other week. You had Galbraith. His books were popular. Uh, and after that, you kind of had Keynes and Adam Smith. They were, you know, gone. It's shortly that around then. Mm-hmm. Smith long before, of course. But but that was it. In other words, it, it, it's not like today where because of blogging and the Internet and podcasts and uh, Medium and Substack, you know, there are dozens of economists. They're not all, you know, wildly famous, but the opportunity to have a platform is so different. And in those days, they were they were kind of it. Yes, it's true. I, one of the things I was surprised about, I was expecting to have to deal with Galbraith at some length. But actually, as history's moved on, Galbraith has been washed up. Yeah. Uh, of course, he was also, always rather secretly despised by economists because he really wasn't an economist. He was an agricultural economist, whatever that is. And he was also Canadian. So he was sort of not quite <laughs> right. You know, there's something not. I, 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 I used to hang out with him at the Kennedy School at Harvard. And uh, there's nothing nicer, you know, with the man whose legs. I mean, it's like being with a spider, his big it's long exciting. legs and yeah. arms and everything. And he was very generous and helpful uh, in a biography I wrote by Margaret Thatcher where he gave me absolutely crisp and wonderful quotes about how her economic policies made no sense at all. We had tea at the Ritz. So he's a very nice person to hang out with. But in terms of permanent influence, Galbraith is gone. Nobody reads Galbraith's day. Yeah, and I, I think the the lack of respect among the, the tribe of economists was that he never pretended to try to play the jargon and equation game that that other colleagues did. And so he was looked down on, I think. Fairly or not, but that is, I think, accurate. He also had a Galbraith had a very high opinion of himself, which is why he didn't become the Keynesian <laughs> fighting with Friedman in Newsweek. If he'd been smarter mm-hmm. about it, he would have realized that that was the way to maintain his reputation. But instead, yeah. he, he was too grand. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's interesting to me that both of those men, Samuelson and Friedman, took the job. And you write it some length about their back and forth, and they're wavering about it at first, not sure whether it was a good idea. There is something tawdry, I think, in academic circles, particularly then, less so now, but particularly then that you would try to popularize your ideas. That was seen as sort of beneath a a really first-rate scholar. It's true. It's true. Uh, That certainly came out of uh, Britain. Oxford and Cambridge were always very intellectually snobbish. Yeah, uh, they they didn't like anyone who hadn't been to Oxford or Cambridge for a start, uh, <laughs> but, uh, which cuts most of us out. <laughs> uh, so uh, Samuelson sort of played that game, though. Of course, he was a re- reject from Harvard. The work that you were talking about, Foundations of Economic Analysis, started off as his P- PhD thesis, which stunned his supervisors, who realized that he was way beyond them. I mean, they looked at each other and then said, I guess he's right, is he? I mean, it seems plausible to me. But he, uh, he, but it was, he was a wonder kid. Yeah. But you would think that Harvard would grab him with both hands. Well, this is the way that Harvard's changed, I suppose, if it has changed. Uh, because he was Jewish and because he was an anti-Semitic head of the economics department, he wasn't offered a full lectureship, which is why he walked across the Charles River and became the the key star at MIT, when MIT was just an engineering school, he transformed MIT. There's no doubt yeah. about it. He, he, you know, they, they should put a statue of him in the entrance hall of MIT. Uh, they, I mean, they, they know his importance, but I mean, it, it's, uh, it just shows no, how foolish ag- academic worlds are because they have most, their own logic and it doesn't really fit reality. Yeah, most everyone would put MIT in the top five 
academic departments, economics departments in the world. Mm. It wasn't then. It was a bold, actually quite risky move at the time. I'm sure he was uneasy about it. Um, and he wrote his economics textbook, of course, for MIT as an introduction to undergraduates. So yeah. that's why it's pitched Fascinating. absolutely at sort of 18-year-olds, which is when you would have read yeah. 17, 18-year-olds when you would have read it. So it always so had that sort of popular aspect, which was uh, to his great credit, because it takes an intellect of some confidence, I think, to be able to simplify things and retain their accuracy and, and take on the criticisms from all comments saying, well, of course, you've missed out half the story. Yeah. Samuelson did, but at the same time, he managed to maintain the true essence of his argument because he knew it so well and back to front. I never thought about it, but writing a textbook in those days was also seen as a, beneath a great scholar. So he not only wrote a column in Newsweek, but he also wrote a textbook, an undergraduate textbook. Now, having written Foundations of Economic Analysis insulated is somewhat from Which the Which won him the Nobel charges. Prize, by the way. <laughs> yeah, that, right, that, so. alone, that alone was cited as his Nobel yeah. Prize winning effort, yeah. which was done before he was age 21. Yeah. Yeah, he was uh, the, yeah, probably the two best – Two most innovative PhD theses in economics are probably that and uh, Kenneth Arrow's uh, work on the impossibility uh, theorem, which is um, extraordinary. But anyway, um, let's um, – I want to talk about Friedman's legacy, which we'll, we'll, we'll divide it into two parts. Let, let's start with the his academic work, which I think – I have to say I think you underestimate, which is – obviously think it's – quite important but i think there's one thing i want to i want to quibble with and then we'll talk about his political the political claims that we just mentioned earlier now milton's contribution you claim to my surprise that his work on monetary theory was an academic failure is that a fair assessment um i don't think that he convinced everybody that he had to convince for it to be a success. Doesn't so mean explain, that, and within, then I'll, I'll push back. Within his own terms, I think, that, that there's no doubt that the, the truth about the quantity theory of money is self-evidently true. I think that what he then did with it, which is to turn it, and a lot of it was to do with being popular, was to simplify it, oversimplify it to the extent that it money became the only reason for inflation. I think probably, well, we didn't persuade it, mainstream economists and that to that extent i think he failed and and you also argue and i think this is just um that like many things milton did milton would would claim this is the best solution and then here's not bad that might be politically feasible so for example some he he had the idea of the negative income tax which became the basis for the earned income credit in the united states to some extent he he didn't particularly like it i don't think but he said the current welfare system's a horrible, uh, crazy quilt of different programs. It'd be better to have one, and this is the way it should work. Um, so I think he had an ideal of, of monetary policy, which was a fixed rate of, of growth of money. And he didn't persuade anyone to actually implement that in a reliable way that they were public about, which you write about at some length, that he was eager to find a politician who was willing to get on that horse. But I do think he revolutionized the role of the Federal Reserve and the national banks, the central banks of, of the world, before he came along, uh, first of all, no one believed that inflation was mainly a monetary phenomenon. 
And no one believed in the importance of the central banks until – I mean he created him, in my view, and you could disagree. He created Paul Volcker. He created Alan Greenspan. He created Ben Bernanke and his, their counterparts around the world because he pointed out, based on his 1962 study with Anna Schwartz, The Monetary History of the United States, I think I'd be right, um, that, that money was incredibly influential in, in affecting economic activity in the short run. But not so much in the long run, in which case it mainly affected the price level. That Twitter summary, I think, was a radical idea that is overwhelmingly accepted by many economists today and certainly by policymakers. Do you agree? Yeah, yes, I do agree with that. Uh, okay. and, until Milton, all Keynesians who ruled the roost said that money didn't matter. And he said, yeah. excuse me, it matters most of all. And that message did get through. And he transformed, of course – what you're talking about, the central banks and the way that they manipulate an economy, because he gave them their discretion back. Until then, everybody lived under the Keynesian Bretton Woods Agreement where everybody was fixed. So there's actually not too much for a central banker to do, apart from just watch as Keynes's formula kept a very rigid structure. Uh, it was very daring, I think, of Milton Friedman to encourage, he tried to encourage Nixon in the first place to do it, uh, when he f first went into the White House, and, and Nixon ignored him, but he was picked up later. And the floating of exchange rates, I think, has been a great liberating force for any dynamic economy. So he, he released uh, the excitement and urgency and animal, animal spirits, as Keynes would say, yeah. in an economy <laughs> by, by saying, you know, you'll live and die by your um, currency rate, your own currency. Fix your own currency rate where you want it best. Which I think, looking back at Keynes, who came across, who invented the uh, general theory in order to counter the fact that he believed that the pound sterling had been fixed at the wrong rate in 1918 with structural unemployment in their millions during the 20s when America was enjoying a boom. Britain was already in a Great Depression, and which lasted a decade before we got to 1929. And mm -hmm. I think that actually looking back on it, the Keynes would acknowledge that that was right. And the, the, his own agreement to Bretton Woods, although it was his solution, um, in, a, in a modern world where economies are moving fast and where technology is moving fast and businesses have to accommodate all of this sort of stuff, the more flexibility you have in an economy, the better for those who try to manage it, trying to ride it. Now, you said, and I think you're right, that in some sense, Friedman unleashed the discretion of those central bankers, gave them an extra technical term is a degree of freedom uh, because the exchange rates were floating, which was an idea it put forward in capitalism and freedom. Um, but the irony is, is that he wanted them not to have discretion. His preferred world was a slow but steady growth in some fundamental measure of money that would roughly mirror the productivity level of the economy, ensure stable prices. Now, I interviewed him in 2006. We'll put a link up to that interview. You know, he he believed that that central bankers talked about their job differently than how they actually did their job. He was he felt pretty good about uh, what they did. But but the point I want to emphasize is that he wanted to take discretion away from the central bankers. He wanted them, uh, and it's a very interesting. You know, John Taylor is the modern, uh, uh, you know, I would say promoter of this idea that, and he had a, he has a different rule than Milton's, but the Taylor rule. Is an idea that says you know central bankers should be a little bit more like a, an index fund than than a stock picking set of, of managers. They should try to constrain themselves, and um, that's a rather dramatic 
change doesn't always happen. You can we can debate whether how much of impact that actually had, but I think um, it's, it's clear it was an important idea that that had an impact. Yeah, there are two things there. First of all, the work, the extraordinary work that you did with Anna Schwartz, which was actually to look at the data, the big data yeah. about how yeah. we got to the Great Depression, and worked yeah. out that, and it was a Keynesian understanding that he brought to it, Correct. which was actually there should have been more money pumped in. Yeah. It's quite the opposite of the way that uh, Milton Friedman has always been associated with a restricted monetarism where people are clamping yeah. down in order to cure inflation. But what he said that uh, the American economy should have done would, you know, get the faucets open, get some money in that system. The yeah. banks won't go bust. Everybody would be, you know, or more people would be in jobs and it'll cure itself. So that was a different reasoning. When it came to uh, later on, I think his, his profound problem was, however right he was about the quantity theory of money. He didn't find a persuasive way of telling practical people like Paul Volcker, this is how you do it, because they couldn't even agree on what bit of money you measured. Is it M3? Is it M4? Is it M0? M1? Each central bank would choose a different measure. The, the British experiment in monetarism was all on M3, and that was something which the American Volcker wasn't looking at at all. And they, I think it was very difficult. Also, I think central bankers are under enormous pressure from their political masters to do something. For goodness sake, do something. And, you know, I've got an election coming up any minute, which is always true. <laughs> yeah. There's another one just around the corner. Do something to help me, would you please? And I think you've got to give it, he doesn't get credit for very much, but Jimmy Carter appointed Volcker to fix hyperinflation and left him to it. He got no yep. pressure. And to the extent that Volcker's saying, I'm expecting the president to arrive any minute, you know, red-faced and ready to punch me on the nose, but he never did. He never mentioned it at all. So he also, yeah, he also appointed uh, Alfred Kahn and began the process of deregulation that certainly Reagan continued, but it, it started in a very active way under Carter's administration. Mm. So turning to the, um, you know, this question about, about uh, measuring M2, M3, et cetera, you know, Milton, I think, I think he was an M2 fan late in his life, but I can't, I, wonder, I don't want to quote him on that. I did get, when he was in his 90s, he did send me a spreadsheet after I interviewed him, which was really quite an extraordinary experience. I, you know, I'd interviewed him and I said, you know, you made this claim. I looked at the data and I'm not so sure. I don't see it. And he, he wrote me back and he said, oh, you're looking at the wrong measure. And I, I think it was M2. He said, if you look at M2, you'll see it's, it's exactly what they're doing, um, which is, you know, it's a beautiful thing. I hope I'm that intellectually alive at, in, in my 90s. I hope I make it to my 90s. Um, let's turn to the um, – actually, actually – I want to say something else about about the connection between academic work and, and policy work. Friedman, in many ways, won the middle round, you could argue, of the debate between the two of them when, when stagflation came along, which was a challenge in the you know in the late seventies to the Keynesian models. Because in the Keynesian models, if you have high inflation, you should have low unemployment. If you have high unemployment, you should have low inflation. And we had both high inflation and high unemployment, and this was um, this is a signal that something was had to be the model had to be adjusted or thrown out, depending on your your perspective. Um, Friedman himself said, by the way, that it wasn't the theory, uh, the monetary history of the United States, that convinced people about the importance of money. It was New Zealand's experience with uh, Don Brash as central banker who clamped down on the money supply and inflation ended and disappeared, and people went, oh. I guess that's how it works. So it's fascinating to me to think about, you know, while they're having this academic debate about theories, 
the real world is imposing its lessons on both of them at various times, sometimes in the favor of one, sometimes in favor of the other. Some of Milton's predictions were disastrously wrong as well in, in the 80s, you know, predicting inflation that didn't happen. So I find, would you talk about that and your, your thoughts on that? Yeah, the, um, Milton was a practical man. So he was eager to get involved in politics, and he was the economic uh, brain behind Barry Goldwater, for instance. So he was very early in that rise of the, the rebirth of the conservative movement, which blossomed in Reagan and Thatcher's time. Mm-hmm. And that uh, practicality meant, I think, that he um, was obliged to try to work out how his immensely complex understanding of what reality was, could be translated in a simplified form enough to be useful to anybody. And I think he struggled with that. Uh, what he spotted, though, which was exactly the, the Phillips curve, I think Phillips actually came from New Zealand in the first place, the trade-off between unemployment and inflation, that it didn't tally. and It made no sense. Ned Phelps also spotted this and in a separate way disproved mm-hmm. the Phillips curve. Uh, and that was the opportunity, really, for Friedman to say, well, this key part of Keynesianism isn't working. It needs, therefore, revising, and I'm your man. And it took Samuelson, I think, a long time to take that on board. He was reluctant to admit that the great man had been wrong about, about this sort of thing. Although I think that he, everybody admitted that Hicks, who transferred Keynes into a simple formula, had oversimplified in many respects, hadn't taken time into account, for instance. It was always a sort yeah. of... A snapshot where actually the figures moved. So let's talk about the policy um, and political side of, the, of of both of them. Now, Samuelson wasn't nearly as politically connected. What didn't didn't long for it. You point out Milton did and tried to advise a number of Republican candidates for president and actual presidents with I think very mixed results in terms of them listening. I don't think they listened so much. Um, the one exception to that might be the Volunteer Army. Which is a shocking policy revolution that that Friedman wasn't the only one. There were others who were working alongside him, but uh, that that was one idea that that did catch on, which is surprising. I think probably surprised Milton. If he had to pick one idea that he thought would win, it wouldn't have been that one. Um, but but talk about make your claim about about Milton's uh, influence on 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 public policy and on uh, on on the Republican Party because I, I was surprised yeah. at that. Although that he he played for a conservative team always, he always it was always a Republican president. There are some people who wobble between can actually be just as happy in, under a Democrat as under like Volcker, just as happy under one regime as under the next, as long as he's allowed to do what he needs to do. But Milton always was a he was a fierce partisan, but at the same time he wasn't a conservative like Hayek, who famously wrote, "I am why I am not a conservative." Friedman didn't consider himself a conservative. Uh, His notion of the relationship between an individual and the state was very important to him. And he thought that the individual should be allowed as much self-expression as was possible. And he didn't like anything that curtailed it at any stage. Samuelson, maybe it's because he had achieved so much early in life and found himself very comfortable in a world that that he'd inherited from others. He thought, this doesn't really need fixing. You know, if I did well in it, surely everything must be all right in the garden. But uh, Milton Friedman had a different view of that. When it comes to, to take the example of Milton's uh, belief that 
recreational drugs. All drugs should be free. Legal. Yeah, exactly. Legal. Not curtailed. Uh, this includes, by the way, experimental drugs in terms of um, uh, medical yep. experimentation, yep. which also the FDA gets itself into great trouble with because it has to prove that you know the Alzheimer's drug works, for instance, which is probably untrue. So t there's great pressure to approve drugs. But I mean, why should there be a gatekeeper on these things, is what Milton felt. And the same thing, if somebody wants to snort cocaine, what's it to do with me? What's it to, certainly, what's it to do with the White House? Nothing. You know, they're going to do it anyway. So don't put, put people on the wrong side of law-breaking by doing that now. Well, the world has moved on. In a way, it's become Milton Friedman's world. The use of recreational drugs is now amazingly commonplace, that states one after the next Chuck Schumer, for goodness sake, is in favor of legalizing marijuana. You know, yeah. it, almost impossible to imagine, even five years ago, the Clintons famously behind the curve, even though Clinton had, um, he said he hadn't smoked, but he certainly had che chewed some edibles. That's the, <laughs> the truth of that. <laughs> That's how he sneaked around that <laughs> lie. <laughs> uh, so the, the, the world has become as Milton, not wanted it to be, but he thought that it would be. He, he assumed that individuals would do as they liked and that the state should just line up behind everyone else, including somebody's wives and mothers and so on, who tried to get people not to do, not to live the way they live. Uh, so, yes, yes, he failed in getting that to come about. But at the same time, he hit upon a, a truth, I think, which modern society has acknowledged. And that is, don't waste your time trying to stop people smoking a joint because they do it anyway. They're going to do it anyway. And it's a waste of time. And, it's, and arbitrary justice is far more serious and an injustice than it is uh, the fact that the 16-year-old might get a joint from this direction rather than that direction. They're going to get one anyway. Yeah. Certainly in that sense, he was not a, quote, conservative, at least the way most conservatives of his day were politically. He, he didn't like the term. He saw himself as a classical liberal, a term that's not in use much anymore. But yeah. He uh, he was def he definitely saw himself as a as a Smithian I would say yes um, but you talk about his influence on the Republican Party and and you also claim which I was stunned that that he has connect you, you blame him or or connect him to the election of Donald Trump I, I I'm totally mystified by that so take a crack at that I've talked about first draft of history this is very early in trying to understand what the hell Trump was about. But Trump actually came out of anything. He came out of the uh, Tea Party movement. I think that, that Trump supporters were Tea Party supporters in the first place. And the Tea Party supporters were against the government trying to do things that they didn't want to do. They got fed up. The government does nothing for me. Why am I lending it support? I want, I want someone that understands me in the White House. And they well, certainly didn't get it with George W. Bush. And, and yeah. even less so with George H.W. Bush and so on. To that extent, I think that it's become a populist party in the way that Friedman, I think, was a populist in many respects. He, he, he was somebody, he, but he was a populist waving the flag saying, this way, lads, which of course isn't quite populism. <laughs> but but <laughs> you can see my problem uh, here. But, yeah, that's a good line. I love that. Um, <laughs> no, I think he believed in individual choice. He believed powerfully that people should be free to choose what was best for them book famously called Free to Choose. Uh, at the same time, you're right, he did want to be a Pied Piper of sorts to to have them follow a certain set of, of at least political or philosophical ideals. But, you know, I think 
the reason I I want to push back on those claims is a couple of reasons. You know, one is he was remarkably unsuccessful in getting the policy innovations that he argued for in his two books, Capitals and Freedom and Free to Choose. He got floating exchange rates. He got some limits to monetary expansion. He got a volunteer army. The rest, and there was page after page of you know, getting rid of agricultural subsidies, getting rid of subsidies to Amtrak, um, a smaller government overall, freedom of choice for people in the areas of drugs and elsewhere, um, a role, uh, just a much smaller role for government. And over his lifetime, government just grew steadily. And this idea that somehow we live in his world or that the neoliberal world is that we, quote, live in is his creation, he, he would be shocked. He's not here to to defend himself, but he certainly would, would say, and he did say to me, he said, you know, most of my ideas didn't never bore out. People never tried them. They didn't, I didn't, he didn't, he wanted private social security. He wanted to get government out of retirement pensions. All those ideas, nothing, no traction. He did, he put them on the intellectual table, which I think is not unimportant, but his influence on the Republican Party to me is nil. You know, he changed their rhetoric, but they're not the party of small government. Donald Trump was an enormous spender. John, George Bush was an enormous spender. Even Ronald Reagan was a big spender. Yes, it was on defense, but more than it was on social welfare. But I, I think Milton would say he he failed terribly in his influence on the political process. Well, I think I may be being half Brit. I, that my Thatcher experience probably tells a slightly different story. Uh-huh. This is a country that in 1945 elected a wholesale socialist government, which transformed uh, the pre-war administration into a, a proper working welfare state with single-payer health care. Uh, we're talking about cradle-to-grave socialism. You know, yeah. we'll, we'll pay for your funeral too. They did. They did everything. And they nationalized everything. Steel, coal, buses. I mean, there's nothing that they, they didn't see that they didn't want to own. And I think that Milton contributed towards the Thatcher Revolution, which came to the conclusion in the early 70s onwards, that actually this was not the way to do it. Even the Labour Party changed. It became a non-socialist party in that sense. And this is not to do with ownership. Ownership's not going to help you. Regulation you can do things with, but ownership is not the key. You know, it isn't. Karl Marx was wrong. Lenin was wrong. Uh, the, so the, the, the freedom that the economy first under Thatcher, but also individuals enjoyed as a result of the taking off of those uh, constraints by the state, uh, I think that there was probably a more profound, at least as long as it lasted, uh, revolution in thought. And Milton was no doubt behind that, uh, because Mrs. Thatcher not only praised him openly all the time, but actually when his her treasury ministers didn't do as she wanted, she got Milton to come and lecture them which they were not very pleased about. <laughs> Can you imagine in the cabinet room, there's Milton on one side of the table, and then there's a rather glum set of people, including people like Nigel Lawson, who don't like to be told what to do. And then Margaret Thatcher leaves saying, I'll just leave you to Milton, I'll be back in an hour. And they're going, what? <laughs> plucky, very oh, plucky Milton, by the way, in the lion's den. <laughs> yeah, well, he, he loved being there, uh, even though he was a diminutive person physically he was you know i think he's probably five four maybe a little bit less um but his 
his intellect towered, so he, he was never un, unconfident in that, those kind of settings. The, well, yes, I mean, you know, it's the classic short person, I guess. I mean, I don't want to get into paperback psychology here, but it, it didn't, didn't harm him, the fact that Paul Volcker was six foot five or whatever he was. Yeah. <laughs> and yes. a good foot and a half below him. You couldn't, you know, had to stand on a chair to prod him in the chest. <laughs> it's true. It's true. So they're fantastic uh, characters in this story, by the way. But I don't know where people say economics is the glum science. I've never found it so. It's full of amazingly untold, spirited stories, you know. Great characters, great characters, of which Milton, yeah. you've got to give it to him. I mean, he was all singing and all dancing, wasn't he? At every moment of the day and night. I yeah. mean, you know, he, was at, he was at it. He was a happy warrior, as we call them. You know, someone who's actually got up every morning saying, "What? hey, what can I do today? How can I make the world a, a different place, if not a better place today? And he loved to spar. He loved to spar intellectually. He loved yeah. that back and forth that we were, we were talking about. It's interesting, you know, he had his, probably his best friend at Chicago was uh, George Stigler, who was at least 6'5". Um, I don't know <laughs> if he sought out taller men to, to, to even emphasize it, but, uh, and, and I'm sure, but, and, and both of them actually, both Samus and Friedman had a, um, an intellectual counterpart, a colleague who was less interested in public policy for Samuelson, it was Robert Solo, and for, for Friedman, it was George Stigler. George Stigler believed that trying to influence politicians was a waste of time. Lecturing them about truth was irrelevant. They responded to incentives, and trying to tell them what they should do was, was, was foolish. You should just watch them like a circus for entertainment and to you know, make observations on them. And similarly, Solo, I don't know about his views on, on policy per se, but he, he certainly was the academic's academic. And, and they both have won Nobel Prizes also. Mm. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, uh, of course, Friedrich Hayek had strongly recommended to Milton, don't mix with politicians. You, you'll waste a lot of time, you'll get heartbreak, you know, they'll lead you up the garden path. Uh, and But Milton thought that if you managed to get the decider on your side, that you could get things done. He was, in that sense, he was very practical. He was, he was a, well, by the time he has achieved fame, he was actually relatively old. But he was sort of an old man in a hurry, but he still had yeah. you know things things to do, right up to the end of his life. I mean, it's not, no surprise that the day after he died was his latest column in the Wall Street Journal. I mean, he was at it to, right to the end, and True. and I think he, well, looking back, the experience he was disappointed by everybody. He, even first of all, he too enjoyed an intellectual snobbery. He would judge everybody purely by the measure of their intellect. And that was to do with instinct. That is, he just worked it out. He, you know, no, no measures needed, no IQ tests. But he, he spotted somebody like Nixon and said, I think probably the brightest man that's, that's ever been in the White House. Now, he was very, very keen on Nixon. And then, of course, he's then profoundly disappointed that such an intelligent man should get things so wrong or deliberately get things wrong so cynically. That is, that he would, you know, prices. Nixon knew that you, you could not fix prices and wages. It's, yeah. it's an impossible task. It, you can put whatever laws on you like. The people find their way around it. And uh, in any case, it may make a marginal, temporary difference to your prices and your wages. And yet he, knowing this fact, he said, I'll do it anyway because the public wants to, a government that looks as if it's trying to address these things. Yeah. And that's the way they'll understand it. Fixed prices yeah. is what, you know, in a bar, they just should fix the price. But, yeah, but of no use. And Friedman... Lesson 
took him to task. <laughs> he was quite happy to lecture yeah. the President of the United States in the Oval Office. You're wrong. For sure. You're completely yeah. wrong. <laughs> yeah, one of my most... I want. I have a photograph. I don't have it here because I've just moved to Israel and sitting in a warehouse in Maryland. But uh, I have a photograph of Milton talking to me after a presentation I made uh, at the Mount Pelerin Society meetings. I've only been to one or two, but uh, Milton happened to be at one of mine. And um, it's the reason I love the picture. He's talking. I'm listening. Very, very, <laughs> very <laughs> appropriate. <laughs> yeah, as it should be. And to play to play armchair psychologist for a minute, it's a fascinating observation that he was an old man in a hurry. I think so much of his youth was spent in an intellectual wilderness where no one respected him. He was seen as a buffoon, a, a crank. Yeah. Uh, and by the time his he got the Nobel Prize in, uh, I think, 1976, uh, if, I think, if I have that right. Uh, he was already, uh, he was born in, I think, 1912. He was, yeah. 64, he was 64 years yeah, old, yeah. right? Friedman, Samuelson got the second one. Samuelson back in 60-something. Um, so he was an old man in a hurry. When he had the, the prestige and reputation that would allow him to influence the world, I think he wanted to grab it as 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 intently as po- intensely as possible, and that's why I think he chased after many of those those uh, political influences. Yeah, they, they were, they, there's no doubt he had a craving to be vindicated. He yeah. thought he was right all along. Why not? You know. Yeah. Many many of us do. As it were. Yeah, that's but, a great that's a great insight. I think that's he, correct. And and Rose was always there to remind him. You know. Yeah. Whenever he wavered, thinking, oh, it doesn't really matter. I said, yes, it does matter, but it does matter. You know, it matters. Of course, it yeah. matters that Samuelson got the Nobel Prize first. <laughs> yeah, it's true. I, I want to read a quote that I, I don't know. I don't remember when he said this. Um, it, was a, it was Samuelson talking about Friedman. He said, here was a – I found this so um, revealing of, of, of Samuelson – here was a libertarian immune to compromise, opposed to state power, skeptical of both politicians and bureaucrats, unmoved by good intentions. It's a, it's a very accurate summary of, of Friedman. Uh, talk about that, Samuelson's assessment. Yeah, I mean, Milton Friedman was always um, aware of the disconnect between what people said they hoped to achieve by progressive acts even including public broadcasting, and what the reality was. So with public broadcasting, for instance, let's take an example, but welfare is the same thing. You set out with a war on poverty, but you end up paying mostly black people to stay at home and doing nothing. Is that, is that what you had in mind? That can't be what you had in mind. That's not curing poverty. That is institutionalizing poverty and locking it down and locking these people and their children forever into this terrible need for the state to give them a helping hand. With public broadcasting, it was, yeah, good idea. You know, let's put shows on, let's put operas on, let's put all the stuff on that the market won't put on. But then what, what you're doing is actually, you look at the people who actually watch PBS and they're the very narrow band of people who go to the opera anyway. You know, they're, they're, they're used to super, this is the, the problem with the BBC, you know. It's super serving the very people who don't need any help. They're doing it, you know, of their own volition. And so to actually, I mean, Milton pulled himself up by his bootstraps 
as you say, he grew up without a father, a very hardworking mother, pretty unglamorous those early years for Milton. You know, sold T-shirts in order to eke out enough to, so he could eat at, uh, when he went to school and so on, and, uh, which is where Rose points at Samuelson lying on the beach in every summer vacation saying, he's not doing anything. <laughs> and Samuelson, in his defense, would say, I had all of these scholarships. I would felt mean if I went out and took somebody else's job. You know, I didn't need the job. So, I'm, you know, but, but when we get to the, back to Milton Friedman's very clear understanding of just because you say you've cured a problem, you liberals, doesn't mean you have done. You know, you might feel happy about it in your, but if you think about it for a minute in your heart of hearts, you know that what you've replaced is one tyranny with another tyranny. And there are ways out of this. And I, I'll show you how you do it. You let people, you know, you open the doors and let people out. You don't lock them into some system that you've invented because you think it would be better. This is all straight Hayek, really. That is that the agents of the state, why should they know what people's choices should be? They don't because, they, you know, they are comfortably well off. They're in a secure job. You know, the federal government won't be abolished. And they're making grand decisions as if they were a, a duke in medieval times or something for their um, peasants. And that's inappropriate because this is a democracy and people should be allowed to follow their own lights, like I did, said Milton. Uh, I think that that, that that was an inspirational thing for a lot of people. And, of course, early on, his some of his earliest work was on rent control, which is has good intentions to make housing more affordable and yet – Friedman argued uh, that it led to, I think it was a paper he did with George Stigler in uh, late 40s, early 50s, that it actually reduced the supply of housing and therefore wasn't helping the people it was supposed to help. Absolutely. He and Rose, of course, both worked for the New Deal. The right. early jobs were for the New Deal, uh, yeah. which he always found, as we should all find, ironic. So he saw it first, I mean, knowing what he thought, he was seeing it firsthand what Amity Schles did so brilliantly in exposing the tyrannical aspects of Franklin Roosevelt, the things that he yeah. closed down. You know, you can't keep chickens, you can't grow this. Right. I mean, all those sorts of inhibitions which were imposed by the state in order to get a small number of people to prosper. So you're picking and choosing now between citizens, whereas Milton was, you know, everything should be open to everybody and everybody should have equal access to whatever is available. And, uh, yeah. we, we, you know, we, we've had enough of... Um, people who think they know better because I've, I've, I, know, I know people like that and they don't look after me. I think that's, it was always very personal for Milton. But the other point about that I think is is correct that, you know, that Friedman was, the other part of Samuelson's quote, Friedman was uncompromising. He was an ideologue. Um, I think he would probably claim he wore two different hats, the ideologue hat and the academic hat. But, you know, my claim has always been that it's hard to keep them separate. Um but I do think that's uh, Samuelson's assessment was correct there, uh, and it's not a it's not a bad bad summary of it's what, a very good of summary, what made I mean. him tick. Yeah, it's not entirely flattering either, actually. Because it, no, no, it's it's actually a, it was a it's a bit of a smear, but I think there's some accuracy to it. I just don't I'm not sure it's actually a smear on paper anyway. But I don't think he intended it's a smear either. I think he was trying to honestly assess who his friend Milton Friedman was. But he did have a negative assessment, which I wanted to come to. We alluded to it earlier. Uh, I'm going to quote it, which I, which is, you know, one of my favorite, uh, one of my least liked quotes. But I, before we do that, I have to quote uh, your, the quote you have from George Schultz, which is rather 
spectacular. Uh, Schultz said something along the lines, oh, here it is. Everybody loves to argue with Milton, particularly when he isn't there. And when I read that line, it's a great line, uh, and it's so true. He, he was a brilliant, brilliant debater, and he, he loved it. And he, as I've mentioned, we mentioned on the program before, particularly talking with Bob Chittister, uh, he always had a smile on when he stuck the dagger in. He was he he made you feel good about it. <laughs> he was very he was a very as you say he was a very charming man. Because it was George Schultz who brought him onto the Hoover and gave him a sort of refreshed life, sort of post yeah. uh, academic life or post academy yeah. life, I should say, because uh, there was no stifling him. But so he prospered in Hoover, and I think that well, you'll know because you also have been to the Hoover that. There is a sort of ghost of Milton which lingers around, particularly those open um, areas where people used to have coffee and cake and tea and so on, where Milton would just amble up and take any, take on all comers like a sort of prize fighter yeah. at, a, at a country fair. And that spirit is missing, I think. That, that Well, they, the whole sort of essence of arguments has gone from Hoover as far as I can understand, which is a shame. It was the thing that made it. That they, well, it's you know, true that he was, he was a... Um that's a great line about taking on all comers. It's a little bit like a ch- the chess grandmaster playing speed chess with 15 or 20 people yeah, at the same yeah, exactly. time. Yeah. But when I was a, I was a national fellow there in um, 85 to 87, and one of the requirements of being a national fellow is you had to go to lunch. And so the national fellows would all go to lunch, and we'd sit around uh, and we'd go once a week. I think it was on Friday. And Milton showed up at a bunch of those, uh, as did other fellows. But, yeah. but for Milton Friedman to be their Nobel Prize winner was always uh, very flattering and exciting for us because he wasn't there to just chit-chat. He wanted to test you and push you and see what you were made of, and he'd try to impose his will, his intellectual will. That's right. It was fabulous. I can imagine. The, uh, the, yeah, the Hoover, these were not laurels to rest upon. They, they were laurels to thwack people with, really. Yeah, and for sure. You, I mean, he had a perfectly nice uh, apartment in San Francisco. And it's a bit of a schlep, actually, to get out of the city and go down to Palo Alto. It you is. You know, on the train or the car, whichever way you do it, it's, it's, you know, it's taken a chunk out of your day. But I think that he would, knew that he would be meeting people who were open to persuasion, at least. If you yeah. were part of the Hoover, you know, you were, at least had that door open. Uh, whereas in the rest of Stanford, probably not. Uh, yeah, I like to think yeah. it's still true of Hoover, but but it 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 doesn't have the, um, in my experience there in recent years, at least in the summer, which is when I was typically there, it doesn't have the the social um, sparring back and forth that 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 we've just evoked. Maybe it does during the during the school year. I don't know. I would, yeah, I used to go in the summers through the nineties, uh, and uh, yeah, the, the spirit was still alive then. And I must have gone to what was probably the, almost the last seminar by George Schultz, mm-hmm. who died just as this uh, book was going to bed. Mm-hmm. Uh, Schultz was an extraordinary figure, and uh, he took part in everything. I mean, he, would, he was there at church on Sunday mornings. I mean, he, in the Stanford, uh, he was busy, Schultz, and a very um, benign guiding hand he was, too. Very, very sensible man. Yeah, incredible. He, uh Human being, both in sense of achievement and and longevity. I, you know, I, I saw him late in his nineties give speeches. He was great. You know, yeah. I'm sure he wasn't as good as he was uh, twenty five years before, but um, who is? he was a different. <laughs> what? Yeah, who is? Who right? is? Yeah. yeah, good point. Uh, I'll, I'll leave that alone. Let's. Um, <laughs> I'm going to give you that quote, uh, which I don't remember. I don't think you. I can't remember if you quote or not, but it's it's a it's a very telling quote. Uh, and it was after Milton had died, which is – it was after 2008. And it, I remember 
as I read that Schultz quote that everyone likes to debate Milton, especially when he's not there, I was thinking that Samuelson had, had slipped yeah. in as well to that. He says, this is Samuelson on the crisis, he's the financial crisis, he says, today we see how utterly mistaken was the Milton yeah. Friedman notion that a market system can regulate itself. We see how silly the Ronald Reagan slogan was, the government is the problem, not the solution. This prevailing ideology of the last few decades has now been reversed. Everyone understands now, on the contrary, there, there can be no solution without government. And I think, you know, personally, as a classical liberal, I think that's a misreading of the crisis, but it, it, you can make a good case he's right. And I think you make a case he was wrong. It's not like the financial sector was unregulated and we'd left it alone and it ran amok. There was a lot of, tragically, I think a lot of subsidizing of that sector and a lot of actual regulation. I don't think that was the cause of the crisis, but I think the subsidies did encourage imprudence. But I thought it was just interesting that Samuelson in his old age at that point could kick Milton when he was not just down but gone. What, do you, what did you think of that? Well, I mean, it, it sort of contradicts what he's saying, isn't it? Milton was... A long life spent having no lasting influence is what um, Samuelson is saying. But in fact, what he's admitting is that he's dead. I still have to keep kicking him to make sure he is dead <laughs> because these ideas are coming back any minute, you know. Now, I think it was almost the last thing I put in the book, actually. He wrote some very interesting letters to Larry Summers. Larry, who, uh, when Milton died, said, I grew up in a house thinking that Milton Friedman was the devil. And I know that, now know that he was far from being the devil. He was a, you know, a good man trying to find a solution like everybody else, which was, for Larry Summers, a pretty generous thing to say. Yeah. Samuelson uh, was uh, very respectful when Milton died. But in private letters to Larry, he says, uh, I really can't say what I need to say because whilst the body's still warm in the, the coffin, you know, I've got to wait a little time. And then... It, a little after that, he did it completely damning. It was as if, you know, he spent his whole life going up cul-de-sacs, you know, spent his whole time going nowhere. But he, Milton did far, that's why I, I, I think you've got to credit Milton with a lot of the uh, libertarian ideas, which, whatever you say, certainly Trump is not your classic libertarian or your classic populist by any respect. But the fact that the, the voters didn't know that, they hoped that he was something else. That's an interesting argument. Um, I think I, my personal take, which is like you say, it's not even, we're not even on the first draft of history at this point, but I, I think Trump's appeal was overwhelmingly cultural for people who felt he was speaking for them, who had been left behind. Um, he did do some deregulation. That's the, like, the closest thing you can say that was libertarian about Trump. Pretty much in everything else, especially trade, which was an issue dear to Milton's heart. I could, the other thing I want, want to mention is that you know, Friedman hated NAFTA, the North American Free Trade Agreement. He loved free trade. He hated the idea that you needed an X thousand page document to implement it. He said it should be one page. Yeah. We hereby agree not to put tariffs or quotas on each other's products. Signed, yeah. Prime Minister, President, end of story. Absolutely, <laughs> so, absolutely. But in that respect, he was right, wasn't he, about regulation altogether. First of all, that it, whatever you intend to do, it always has unintended consequences. Yeah. Always. Yeah. I mean, all laws have that, actually. Yeah, it's true. Why that is is an interesting question. I don't think we talk about it enough. I think most of the free market friends of mine exult in that claim. 
it's somewhat true. Uh, there are probably some unintended consequences that are positive. <laughs> My friends and I don't like to always remember those. But but I do think it's interesting that we don't dig deeper into that uh, as I think as I think um, as I think we should. One last thing on this this issue of reputation, and uh, you, I always felt after two thousand and eight how little Milton mattered. It made me sad, actually. You know, if he'd been alive, I think his voice would have been active. He was a natural rallying point for people who were skeptical of government. Uh, and in the aftermath of the crisis, of course, we had a massive stimulus package. You could debate. Economists are still debating whether it had any impact, what its impact was, how big its magnitude was. But I think, as you say, you know, the Keynesian viewpoint of of the multiplier and stimulus in general so drowned out the intellectual history of the previous 25 years. It was like it had never happened. And without Milton being alive to champion his perspective, I was, I've been surprised at how little remembered he has been in the last 10 to 15 years. He's not John Kenneth Galbraith, for sure. He's had influence certainly on academic life. But in the policy sphere, if anything, Hayek has been more influential which shocks me, would never have predicted that. Do you agree? Yes, I do. Uh, and I, it, it's unfair. I think probably uh, I'm unfair on Milton because 15 years after the death of the giant, you know, you shouldn't somehow feel that he's disappeared. I think that Samson was quite right in a way, just in terms of the tribes that uh, both sides managed to attract. And Milton didn't leave a a, a clump of academics who uh, thought along similar lines who could be proxies for him. You know, if there were half a dozen, I mean, you think of the Cambridge circus that Keynes had around him, you know, they went on after his death and they just carried on and on and on like Jesus and his disciples, you know. Samuelson is so well entrenched and so established that all established people represent what Samuelson thinks, I think. They don't have to do it. There's no, there's no fight on for them. I think there are a lot of people who want to be the next Milton Friedman or his acolyte. Um, I know a bunch of them. Yeah. I think in the academic world, it's a tough road to hoe. You know, it is um, the the, the public intellectual part. Yes, there are free market public intellectuals at the great universities in America. There's a few at at each one. Hmm. But it's – he didn't spawn – he spawned a movement of sorts. I think capitalism and freedom and free to choose were, and the and the PBS documentary were amazingly influential in, in, as I said, keeping those ideas alive and on the table. They haven't really affected the political outcomes in America. That there's no, there are a lot of people who would imagine a world being better with smaller government, but they're not willing to vote that way. So in that sense, uh, even more important than his academic. Confrères, I, I just feel like um, Milton was a, was a lonelier voice than he would have liked. I think he combined two things which were essential. First of all, he didn't care what people thought about him, and he was likable, yeah. which is an apparent contradiction. Contradiction, but it, he might have been a gadfly. But actually, he was a gadfly that you know you you didn't put your nets down in the evening when the gadflies came out. You know, he was <laughs> good fun to have around. Yeah. Uh, even yeah. when you're disagreeing, in fact, particularly when you're disagreeing with him. I, I, I can't think of anyone who's arguing, argued with him who said, I agree, all the way through. I mean, it wouldn't be much fun, would it? But uh, 
But it's a remarkable point you make that his that it's 15 years after he died and his influence is I think somewhat th- is thinner than I would have expected. Um, again, you could argue, well, in the world of monetary theory and central bank behavior, his influence is immortal. Uh, but in terms of the political things he wanted and the policy prescriptions outside of monetary policy, um, I don't know if uh, how important he is. But I think he'll have a heyday again, I suspect. Uh, if you I go back and read Capitalism and Freedom, it's yeah. shocking to me how – Timely and thoughtful it still is. It's a thoughtful book. Yes, I not agree that, with it, but it's a thoughtful book. Yes, I think most of his maybe maybe not the TV work that ages because of technology. You know, anything on VHS looks old. You know, like black and white movies look old. Uh, so those those age badly. But I think that what we're talking about is actually all people in the public sphere, fifteen years after their death, have, have been forgotten. It was probably true of Churchill. It was probably true of Franklin Roosevelt. You know, towering figures. And, it's true. You know, nobody reads Updike anymore. You know, I mean, nobody reads Norman Mailer anymore. Thank goodness. I mean, you know, <laughs> these huge figures. In, in their day, they used to dominate our screens, and you know, you'd feel you're missing out if you weren't talking about it at a dinner party. But it's all transient, or for most people, it's transient. You know, you have to be Jane Austen to be read century after century after century. <laughs> My guest today has been Nicholas Wapshot. Nicholas, thanks for being part of Econ Talk. Great pleasure. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.